Welcome, everybody, to our special 2023 festive edition of the Animal Heartbeat. I am Kieran Bourget, and I'm here with my co-host and brother in cardiology podcasting, Jose Novomatos. Hi, Jose. Hi, Kieran. It's, it's so uh, good to be back. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's great yeah. to be back. Um, and it's so close to Christmas. How exciting. Are, you, are your family excited for Christmas now? Yes, very, very much. The kids are over the moon. We we are in Portugal now and uh, ready, ready for Christmas. Yeah. Ready to go. Excellent. Now, I um, I remember visiting a Dutch friend about this time last year to, to help him do a, a transpulmonic stent. And he was telling me about the Dutch Father Christmas and how they come quite early in December and he comes on a boat from Portugal. Do you know the link there between the Dutch Father Christmas and uh, and, the, and the Portuguese kind of beginnings of that? No, I had no clue. That's, that that's is very, a thing, yeah. Yeah. So best you learn, yeah, you learn so much with these podcasts, isn't it? Yeah. Is. <laughs> <laughs> we learn a little bit about cardiology and a lot about life. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, why are we here today, Jose? So today we have a very special uh, episode for you guys, the 12 heart disease of Christmas. On the first day of Christmas, my true love sent to me. I'm excited. Kieran and I will tell you about our favorite 12 heart diseases. Uh, so these will be brief summaries of top facts of each of these conditions, which we pick because we like them. Um, I think if anyone out there doesn't have a favorite heart disease of Christmas, they will after today. <laughs> exactly. can pick one of these 12. You can pick one uh, of these 12 or you can generate your own, you know, uh, email us and, uh, and let us know what you think. So I actually asked the question on, uh, on Instagram yesterday, what are people's favorite heart diseases of 2023? Do you want to know what people said? Yeah, absolutely. And we'll see. We'll see if some of these come up in our episode. So. Oh, hang on. I can't seem to find it. The the first response was actually, what a question. I do ortho. I can't even interpret an ECG. <laughs> <laughs> Which I was a little disappointed by. So uh, we have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. They're a regular listener. Wiener. They must be. Thank, thanks for posting, JC, on there. Um, cardiac tamponade. Uh, which is it's a fun one. I, I like a bit of cardiac tamponade. It's not, not made my uh, few choices for the list. There's a tough one here. Rupture of an anterior papillary muscle. Ooh. That's a rough, a rough oh, one. Wow. Um, and somebody else has said melody valve placement. I mean, they're just showing off, right? If they're placing <laughs> melody valves. Maybe that's Busadori. Uh, left pulmonary artery stenosis in a cat. It's pretty, you know, uh, a pretty good one. Did you have a, a PA stenosis in a cat recently? Is that right? Yeah, exactly. We have we we have a, a cat with a bilateral branch pulmonary stenosis. And um right. yeah. They're interesting cases, isn't it? But it's so difficult to decide when to intervene. And mm. but yeah, interesting cases. Yeah. Interventions in cats are tough, aren't they? Mm. Um, and then uh, we have we have a, a nice one here: a, a reverse PDA, a right to left PDA. That'd be um, a good one, yeah. Yeah, it's a good a good one. Mm. And some of those themes are coming up actually in our list. So should we dive right into it? I I think um, our plan for the listeners is to share our top twelve heart diseases. And choosing six of them each. Now, I reckon we could have a public vote, or maybe we can just discuss ourselves and choose which one the coolest is. I reckon I can persuade you that one of my choices is uh, is the best. <laughs> Not we'll... so sure about that because I already made my mind. But oh, have you? 
<laughs> definitely, definitely HCM. Okay, so um, let's think about it. Do you want to go first? What's uh, what's first on your list? On the twelfth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me. Yeah, I think I would start. So I'll, I'll need to start with the, with cardiomyopathies, but oh, I think course. I would start with with dilated cardiomyopathy uh, phenocopies. So DCM mimickers, I think that's pretty cool. Cardiomyopathy mimickers, either HCM or DCM are really interesting diseases. Yeah. Um, I think with DCM phenocopies, I think think it's important to remind our listeners of which diseases out there have been described as mimickers of DCM. So tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy, fast heart rates, tachyarrhythmias can cause systolic dysfunction. And that, that's pretty cool because they can cause a reversible type of dilated cardiomyopathies. It's one of our favorite things, isn't it? Well, the ones we can really, really help. Yeah. But then the, the struggle is always when you see a DCM phenotype and the tachyarrhythmia ends up being a chicken and an egg situation. What, what started first? Uh, of course, if we have the classic, maybe the classic example, a young Labrador with a DCM phenotype and bouts of an SVT, this would suggest that most likely this this dog has a tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy and potentially an atrioventricular reciprocating tachycardia. Mm. What I think is cool, I like about what I like about uh, tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy is the the idea in humans that just arrhythmias can induce cardiomyopathies. And so yeah, now they the call irregularity it... and the, the the abnormal depolarization sequence is, is interesting, isn't it? Which is pretty cool, isn't it? Because yeah. Uh, yeah, just there's a large arrhythmia VPC burden in humans, and I believe something above 10% of the 20 wow. of the, the heartbeats in 24 hours can be associated with systolic dysfunction. Uh, of course, this has not been described in dogs, but it's it's really interesting and food for thought that some of our cases, either with primary DCM that have a lot of arrhythmias, mm. uh, the arrhythmias may be causing worse systolic function, or maybe some cases out there have primary ventricular arrhythmias that are causing DCM phenotypes. So I think that was my first first uh, DCM phenocopy. Then myocarditis, yeah. myocarditis. We always talk about myocarditis. Unfortunately, we don't know a lot about myocarditis in dogs and cats. All these phenocopies are more relevant when we see an atypical breed with a DCM phenotype. It's not like that, that we, you need to go through every single differential diagnose when you see a Dobie with a DCM phenotype. But especially if you see an atypical breed, mixed breed dog, or, 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 or a pure breed that rarely has DCM, small breed dog. So our, those are the cases that we really need to, to fish for other causes of a DCM phenotype because they are unlikely to have familial or genetic DCM. I have two thoughts, one of which is um, when I see an atypical breed, so not a Doberman, not a Boxer, not a um, Wolfhound, a Newfie, you know, uh, uh, let's say I see a um, Hungarian Vizsla. I saw one last week, four-year-old Hungarian Vizsla. I go looking for myocarditis, uh, arrhythmias. I I go looking for a a primary cause. And often I don't find them. And I'm a bit sad. Because I, I want it to be a phenocopy. I don't want it to be primary myocardial disease. Um, and that's that's something that I, I sort of, um, I don't know if you identify with. The second thing, you say we shouldn't go looking in the dobies and the boxes so much because just statistically the likelihood is higher of them having primary myocardial disease. But don't you sometimes feel like maybe we're missing some dobies and boxes who do have 
tachycardia-induced changes or who do have uh, a myocarditis change. Uh, and maybe maybe they're ones that we could help. I sometimes worry about that, that I should do more in those cases. Yeah. No, no, I agree. I agree. There's also, of course, a balance of how much stuff you can do time-wise yeah. and money-wise and so on. But no, I, I agree. And, and talking about that, for example, hypothyroidism, which is a potentially important phenocopy or at least low levels of tyroxine will affect systolic function. Yeah. Um, is, is, is hyperthyroidism is highly prevalent in dobies. And so it's totally worth it to, to exclude hyperthyroidism because it's not may not be the primary cause of DCM, but might be contributing. It's probably not helping, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So no, I agree. I agree. And well, no, and now Edison is, is an interesting one, really, that there, there have been a few case reports now, or a case report with a few a, a few yeah. cases of Edison-induced DCM phenotypes or systolic dysfunction. We had a case in in the past six months, I think. So it's also yeah interesting and important for people to realize that Edison may potentially cause 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 systolic, left ventricular systolic dysfunction and DCM phenotype. And it's interesting because the case we have seen with Edison were cases that presented after uh, the medics have treated them. So generally, they, That's they, interesting. yeah, yeah, they present with classic symptoms, signs of hypo of of Edison, and then they start treating them. They they fluid resuscitate them and so on, and then they they present with congestive heart failure. Wow. Um, so I guess there were there were there was preclinical or there was systolic dysfunction, and then uh, they were pushed over the edge with IV fluids and and mineralocorticoids and so on. Um, which is interesting. That's really interesting. And, it, you know, not really on my radar. I mean, Addison's, yeah, sure. I, I know it can cause cardiac changes, but not that it's after treatment. Um, and that's, you know, that's really interesting. Maybe it's the yeah. fluid challenge. I think one of the difficulties with these is even if it's a phenocopy, uh, let's say tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy um, for, for the sake of argument, and it's been long-standing and they present with heart failure signs, and we do our best to treat them and we only get a partial response because there's so much fibrosis and remodeling in the heart that it's past the point of no return. And for those guys, I guess the outcome's the same, maybe as if it was a primary cardiomyopathy. But, you know, it's really hard to know at the time of diagnosis, isn't it? We don't know what the cause is. We have to go on a safari and do more tests. Yeah, exactly. We need. To, we also need to mention diet, though there is yeah. it's potentially a bit controversial, how the impact of grain-free diets on 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 cardiac function in general, because as we discussed in one of our previous episodes, mm. it's very difficult in the UK at least to go to the supermarket and buy a grain-inclusive diet because right. probably 90% of diets are grain-free. So I guess not every dog will will develop the DCM phenotype or systolic dysfunction on grain-free diets. But it's really important indeed to, to understand if dogs are on non-traditional diets, especially legume-rich nowadays, grain-free diets, and try to swap them to to traditional diets because that that might certainly certainly help and then we have we have seen like two two golden retrievers three golden retrievers in the past nine months with taurine deficiency so certain oh, really? breeds are also prone to taurine deficiency yeah interesting i'm uh, i'm a, a a taurine skeptic in dogs i mean sure we know in cats yeah, taurine deficiency yeah, is important yeah. um but i'm a i'm a bit of a taurine skeptic in dogs but then i i keep talking to people that are really smart people and i really respect and they say, "Oh, yeah, well, I think I think we all know there's taurine uh, issues here." And I think, "Oh, 
okay, maybe I'm missing these cases. So now I'm becoming a little bit more attentive to that, um, especially for, for retrievers, you know, especially dogs on lamb-based diets. It seems more common on those lamb-based diets. And you're right about non-traditional foods. That's, you know, I, I would always evaluate, although not necessarily expect it to be low, even if it is a, a grain-free issue. And uh, and I think, and to finalize the DCM phenocopies, I think mm. we should mention congenital heart diseases. So at the, in yeah. the first, when we first diagnose DCM on, on echo, it's very important for everyone to, to remember, to look for PDAs, to look for VSDs. I think PDA would be the, the, my number one large breed dogs that the continuous murmur might have been missed. And, uh, and they, they, Sometimes on echo they look like like DCM, so important not to forget to to exclude a, a left right shunt. Yeah, I'll, I'll never uh, forget a six year old Newfie diagnosed with DCM that I saw for a re-exam and it had a PDA um, yeah. on the echo. Um, so you know they can they're not as easy as we think sometimes, are they? Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. So a thorough echo is important. Not just look at the left ventricle and say, "Yeah, this is DCM," and start PMO. Um, very good. So I think though that's my first uh, heart disease. Yeah, it's an um, interesting start. I mean, uh, you know, I think it's uh, I think it's important. But you know, you mentioned cardiomyopathy. You mentioned phenocopies. I'm going to talk about about a cat with hypertrophy. I um, feel like Ooh. I'm treading on your uh, <laughs> your territory here. On the eleventh day of Christmas, my true love sent to me. So I'm going to talk about acromegalic cardiomyopathy in cats. Nice. Um, nice, nice. This is this is a uh, something that I'm super interested in. At one point, considered going down a PhD route, trying to find uh, find a PhD there. I'm super interested in this uh, as a concept that it's a reversible hypertrophic phenotype um, of cardiomyopathy in cats caused by hypersomatotropism. Um, so hypersomatotropism in cats, many people will know is acromegaly because that's what we'd call it when a cat develops hypersomatotropism in adulthood. Um, it's normally secondary to a pituitary adenoma, uh, which is producing an excess of growth hormone, and that triggers an increase in IGF-1. So we make a diagnosis of it by measuring IGF-1. And if IGF-1 is over 1,000, we'd say it's likely acromegalic. When people think of acromegaly, they think, number one, it's rare. Number two, we've got secondary changes to the face, the pores. And number three, it causes diabetes, so uncontrolled diabetes. And those things are interesting because if we look at humans with acromegaly, actually between 30 and 50% of them are diabetic. There's a whole heap of humans out there who are non-diabetic acromegalics. And a few years ago, I, I was involved in some research on this and, and reporting some echo changes in cats who had undergone medical treatment uh, with pazureotide um, and surgical treatment by hypophysectomy to try and control their um, IGF-1 effects on their body. One of the cats in that cohort was non-diabetic. I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And it was actually the brother of one who'd been diagnosed because of poorly controlled diabetes. And now you see the literature and they're out there. Case series, eight non-diabetic acromegalic cats, two non-diabetic acromegalic cats. So there's, you know, probably the ones we're seeing with diabetes are the tip of the iceberg. So I worry, therefore, about how many cats have got secondary changes to the heart that we just don't know about or how many cats that we diagnose with hcm who are non-hyperthyroid non-hypertensive actually have a thing that's reversible is that something you think of in your practice when you see when you see uh, cats with hcm do you test for acromegaly 
I have to say that I I I I love this subject as well, and and the the, the papers you published on these are very very cool, and I, I would really strongly recommend everyone to read the paper when you describe the acromegalic cardiomyopathy. Time with cats is never wasted, or something. Time like with that. cats is never wasted. I I'd, I'd like <laughs> yeah. to take credit for the sexy title. title sexy uh, title. Credit or blame? I'm not sure which. Yeah. But that was definitely that was definitely Stein Neeson, uh, yeah. my co-author yeah. and uh, eminent endocrinologist. Yeah, that, that's a really nice manuscript. So everyone should read it. And um, no, yeah, absolutely, I agree. And I think he's very excited. I love you know copies. I love the idea that some stuff out there that we say there, there's these the, the, some cases that we call HCM are not HCM, are not familial HCM. Right. And um, and considering what Stein showed that acromegaly is so prevalent or is more prevalent than we believed, maybe, yeah. maybe indeed there are cases out, out there that look like HCM and are acromegaly. But just to answer your question, what my struggle then is I would love, honestly love, to measure IGF-1 in every single cat. Mm. It's so expensive. It's money, uh, right? And, I agree and, with you. Yeah, yeah. And we, we can't do it. So... I struggle at the moment. Honestly, we are only measuring it when on in diabetic cats. Mm. Um, but it's a shame because we 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 are very likely missing some cases. But what do you do? Because IGF one, I think, is like thousand pounds or something like that. Is is expensive? Just to no, measure. it's it's not that expensive. But it uh, it's um it yeah. is expensive. It's um it's you know double the cost of of anti-proBNP and troponin, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. and it, it's the sort of thing that I think I I do think. In cats with with um, HCM who are non-diabetic, or sorry, an HCM phenotype uh, who are non-diabetic, I, I think it's a low yield test. But some data that we published um, a, a few years back now suggested that a small proportion of cats, five percent, seven percent, something like that, who who have a diagnosis of HCM made, might actually be acromegalic based on their IGF. Now, obviously, in that paper, we didn't. CT their head. We didn't look for an adenoma. We didn't confirm acromegaly. So I'm not saying that all of the positives in inverted commas in that paper were acromegalic, but it's just an interesting thought, isn't it? That maybe we are missing it. What do I do? I, I definitely test it if they are diabetic. I think if they are an older cat and they have um, very symmetric hypertrophy, and also especially if they have aortic insufficiency, because that was something that was more prominent yeah. in the acromegalic cats in our paper than a, a group of age-matched controls. I think about acromegalic cardiomyopathy. Um, I don't test them all. I agree. It, it's money and, and, and how likely the test is to yield uh, a positive result. Because if you do get a positive result, then what do we do? Well, we see to the head if the owners are thinking about surgery. And of course, then there's a whole, you know, the, the cat's going to be anesthetized with cardiomyopathy, um, maybe. And and uh, you might open a door to something the owners don't want to know, actually. Um, if they're not going to go down the road of brain surgery, basically, um, then it's kind of pointless knowing if they're acromegalic or not. But it's an interesting topic. What's super interesting for me about it and, and where I think it would be really interesting to do some research would be to look at what's happening in the myocardium before surgical treatment, so hypophysectomy, removing the pituitary gland and therefore the tumour uh, and normalising their growth hormone and IGF-1, these cats have reversible changes. So it'd be really nice to know what's being activated in the myocardium to cause that hypertrophy before treatment and what it looks like after treatment. Now, I hear you say, who wants to biopsy the myocardium in a cat? Uh, but it is possible. And maybe there's a, a picture there on, on proteomics that could be looked at to look at what pathways are activated or metabolomics to look at what's happening there in those cases. Because on histopath and on echo, they were not distinguishable from HCM, I don't think.
Um, so, you know, maybe there's something there we could understand about potential targets for antihypertrophic drugs or biomarkers that might help us with prognosis. So, so there's there's a whole wealth of research there. I think that at the moment is is as yet untapped. Yeah. No, I agree. It would be so nice also for different in different situations to to have myocardial biopsies in cats. But having said that, even if you would get a small biopsy forceps, which the ones available now, nowadays yeah. are huge for cats, yeah, yeah, even yeah, if you get yeah. a small one, then the, the sample will be small. So the pathologist mm. will struggle to get a diagnosis, and then the disease may be scattered across the myocardium. The change may not be present uh, in, in every single myocardial segment. And then most biopsies are taken from the interventricular septum with the right side approach. There's a lot of challenges, which is a shame because it would be so nice to have a myocardial sample, an easy way to get myocardial samples in cats. And there are other heart diseases in our list today that where biopsy and sampling would, would really yeah. help us to understand what's going yeah. on. But it's, it, you know, it's a big limitation, isn't it? Of, yeah. Of what Absolutely. we're doing. Yeah. Acromegaly was, was a great one, yeah. So that's the sweethearts. Over to you. What do you think about uh, another one of your top 12 heart diseases of Christmas? On the 10th day of Christmas, my true love sent to me. I just thought to, to share with you a, a very, an outlier, uh, a case I had. <laughs> we love an outlier. <laughs> a case that I had in Zurich, which never found the time to publish because it's, yeah, very cool case, incredibly, incredibly rare. But I thought I would just bring this one. So this was a cat presented with, with weakness, a middle-aged, uh, uh, non-pedigree cat presented with weakness that we diagnosed with severe pericardial fusion. And then we we tapped the cat, and yeah, the uh, an exudate, the precardial fluid was mm. full of bacteria and and, wow. and neutrophils. And then on echo, there was this linear or thin and long hyperechoic structure inside of the precardial sac, which we thought maybe it's just an artifact, but was was consistent in different views and was just yeah very thin, long mm. hyperechoic structure. So we drained the cat. So and then on, on CT, they also document these uh, seven centimeters long, uh, thin foreign body wow. inside the precardial sac. Um, and then we send the cat to surgery for precardiectomy, and they remove a toothpick what? from the precardial sac. That's crazy, isn't it? Absolutely That's crazy. Nuts. Yeah. So it's like yeah, it's like traumatic pericarditis in a cow, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, that's amazing! And this, these are the things we see and we never publish, right? Um, now, yeah, it's a shame because the city images were neat, and I, I had the toothpick on my desk <laughs> in Zurich. And uh, when I, it's honestly, I, it's, when I left, uh, yeah, I, I, I lost my toothpick. Um, oh, sad times. Which is pretty cool. But imagine a cat to swallow the, the toothpick, and yeah, and, uh, and at some point that was going through the cat's esophageal wall, and everyone was thinking. Why is the cat really cranky today? Those cats are, cr those cats are cranky. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Let's move on. Wow. Yeah, yeah it was yeah, very interesting case. So this is a complete outlier. Uh, but I thought to to to, to yeah to share this this case with you. You want so... an outlier? I've got an outlier for you. On the ninth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me. Go ahead. So this is uh this my my second effort to try and convince you that um you know, these are the coolest heart diseases, is uh, parchment right ventricle. Surely everyone out there has uh, has seen these cases. They're super common. Um, there's, the, I, I mean, I don't think they're very common. I have seen one, and this is called uh, 
Ull's anomaly, UHL, Ull's anomaly. This is where the, the, the right heart, usually predominantly the ventricle, the myocardium is is missing of, of the free wall of the right ventricle. You just have this, this thin sheet of fibrous tissue. Uh, so, of course, it's non-contractile. Um, the, the septum is rarely affected, and the septum is mostly true myocardium. I guess that's because that's the left heart. You know, it, it's slightly different fibers. And the right heart is uh, is so thin, often you can read text through it. So this has been reported very, very, very sparsely in companion animals i think it's reported in two ferrets and maybe one cat or, or vice versa i can't remember exactly but i saw a case in a rabbit with uh with what i thought was arrhythmic cardiomyopathy because uh, on echo it had a huge right heart hypokinetic free wall you know it was maybe three-year-old rabbit i think it was one of these um uh netherland giant uh rabbits the owner came in for the scan and of course it, oh, it was it was very sad because the the rabbit was in right-sided failure and um, I was fascinated by this. And I, I said, uh, uh, we tried to treat and it wasn't successful. Um, and sadly, the, the rabbit was put to sleep. And I said, oh, would you mind if we took a look at the heart? Because it's not often we get to see rabbit hearts. And I'd be very interested in seeing what's happening here. And um, and then the whole of the right heart, the atrium as well, was just so thin. You could just read text through the wall. Um, it was And it was a real, uh, a real parchment appearance. Have you ever seen it? Do you remember how old was the rabbit? Three years. Three. Yeah. Because we, as you were saying on Echo, they look like an IRVC phenotype. Mm. And uh, and then uh, we we generally, when we when we see ARVC, well, also very rare cardiomyopathy in cats, but yes. uh, when we see them, sometimes we discuss these, that this could be Hull's anomaly. Mm. Um, but then generally, I would only consider that in young animals, as this is a uh, in there is a is a congenital defect, an absence of of right ventricle muscle. So one would expect that them to present at, in a young age is a burst defect. If you want, is a congenital yeah, defect. It's of congenital, an isn't it? It's, it's not one that we list on our differentials yeah. for uh, you know murmurs or, or whatever in in puppies. I, I I wonder if it happens and they just don't make it. Most of the diseases that we see are diseases where they're not that bad compared to what happens at birth and they have to live to 12 weeks or 10 weeks to see a vet to have a murmur detected or, or whatever and i think those diseases that are very severe they cause neonatal death um and these are the you know again in heavy inverted commas fading puppy syndrome or puppy pneumonia what what is fading puppy syndrome it's not a real thing these animals are dying of something and i, I suspect congenital heart disease has a very different spectrum if we could look at neonates versus eight, 10, 12 week old puppies and kittens. Um, yeah. You know, in, in humans, the landscape is very, very different because it's diagnosed in utero in, in most of the Western countries. Totally agree. That would be also a research project that one oh, day yeah. I would... It's been on I my would, list for years. Oh, yeah, I would love to do. Because as you were saying, this, of course, these complex congenital heart defects are diagnosed in humans and we, we, we certainly miss a lot of them. So there's certainly a lot of very cool stuff on those fading uh puppies um yeah. but that's a cool indeed a cool very cool one I, I i think i only i have only seen one cat which we thought was arvc was a young cat maybe one year old we thought was arvc right. we also got the chance to do to do a post-mortem on the cat and uh and as you said the, the right ventricle was paper thin paper wow. thin so those are yeah cool cool well not not as cool as a toothpick in the precario sec oh. but okay Come on. <laughs> okay, I mean, okay. toothpick 
toothpick pericarditis is it's only a thing for you. Ool's <laughs> <laughs> cardiomyopathy. <laughs> I'll have you know that that uh, that Ool's um, cardiomyopathy, or, or, or rather Ool's um, syndrome, was diagnosed on on a um, a, a cadaver from the eighteen eighties, um, and it was first described in in the sort of mid twentieth century by you know Ool and, and colleagues. Um, but actually, it's been around much longer than that, so it's not it's not a new thing. Toothpick toothpick pericarditis. I mean. You know, it's a one-off, maybe. It's a one-off. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe you're right. On the eighth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me. So next, I think I would pick chest pain in cats. Um, oh. I think that's that's something that I think is well, it's something very exciting, uh, which we don't really know if it happens or how frequently it happens, but it must happen. It must happen. It um, must happen, mustn't it? People with HCM classically experience angina during exercise, uh, stress associated with with systolic interior motion of the mitral valve is a big, big thing in humans. Each. Um, it's, of course, very difficult to know if, if cats experience uh, chest pain. But then just looking at their cardiac phenotype and histological findings, they must Considering the amount of replacement fibrosis we see right. on histology, the case series that we recently described of, of thin segments that are uh, on histology have like transmural uh, yeah. fibrosis, scars, large, large, large segments that have scar big tissue. Infarcts, aren't they? These, yeah, these are exactly. cataclysmic yeah. events yeah. Yeah. that would have yeah. a person hospitalized yeah. and no yeah. one's noticed in the cat. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, even, if, if, even if they, yeah, even if they happen progressively and are slow, and then skin, sure. uh, progress is, is a slow process. Still, that that must hurt. That must hurt. And so I think we are missing cases of of angina mm. in in HCM cats, most likely in cats with obstructive form of HCM. If you want, um, we see randomly those. And so I, I, I pick this one because I think it's important for vets out there uh, to start asking. Uh, certain questions to 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 the clients to clients that are presented with with heart disease because I don't think a client will present to to us and say oh my cat suddenly stops playing or or randomly yeah. shows open mouth breathing during exercise but then if you, we ask you that, occasionally see those referrals yeah. don't you but not often not often yeah not yeah well, true you're right but not often and then what we feel is like when you ask the client if the cat stops playing and the, and assumes like a crouched position uh, or starts open mouth breathing when they play with a laser with the cat or something like that those are red flags and those cats are the ones that we believe might be experiencing uh, chest pain which which is interesting and it's something that we should definitely address because this yeah. this this must be horrible absolutely horrible the feeling and this will bring bring maybe potential uh, a controversial topic but we would treat many we would treat cats with HCM and SAM with a tunnelol to try to see if there if we if owners we generally do a trial of six months or so to see if the owners document any improve increase in activity levels, uh, which one could postulate were previously the cat was experiencing chest pain. So we frequently try a tunnelol because it's what they try in humans with chest pain. Do, do you give a tunnelol in cats with HCM and SAM or or, or no? Do you know what? This is where our podcast has changed. What I do. Because talking talking to Virginia and talking to you, um, two people I, I very much respect and very much value, you know, your your experience and your expertise in these cases. I, I now run troponin if they have outflow tract obstruction above 
whatever, a gradient of 30 millimetres of mercury. I'll run a troponin. This is what Virginia was telling us. So this is not my idea. If anyone is listening to this and has not listened to our interview with Virginia Luis Fuentes from, from season one, you should absolutely listen to it. She, it's a great uh, chat with Virginia. Uh, all the great stuff is Virginia, not us. Um, and uh, we will run troponin. And if the troponin is above the reference interval, we will treat with a tenolol for one month and we'll repeat the troponin. And if the troponin has dropped, so far, they have all dropped. We're doing this quite a lot now, my resident Caroline and I. Uh, we're continuing the atenolol. Theoretically, our plan for repeating that troponin is if the troponin has not dropped, well, we're not doing anything with the atenolol. So therefore, we won't continue it because who wants to medicate a cat for five years if you don't need to? So we're asking the cat's heart, how sad are you? How high is your troponin? And if it's high, we'll treat. And then we ask, has it helped? And if it hasn't, well, we'll stop it. But so far, all of them, I think Caroline might correct me. All of them that we've done have uh, have come down, and we've continued yeah, the drug. Yeah. So you know that that's our approach. Is it evidence based? No, um, we have no evidence on which to base that on. Uh, but uh, but it's logical. And I will confess that twelve months ago, I wasn't treating them. To, 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 yeah, that, that's a very sensible approach, and is exactly exactly what we do. And as you were saying, there is no doubt out there, but. Well, if troponin is high and then decrease, of course, we would need a placebo control trial and so on because we that, don't know. That's the, the difficulty, what, what, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. What happens with troponin over time mm. in cats and so on? But we 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 have the same belief, if 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 you want, that if troponin decreases, hopefully we are we are we are helping. They must experience chest pain. It's it's so difficult to assess pain in cats in general. It's great how, how much our podcast is changing. Uh, <laughs> Well, at least what we do. The, the, the approach, <laughs> what you and me do, which is great. <laughs> yeah, maybe no one else. Uh, no, probably but, not. Uh, but for probably us, not, but still. We think it's great. You know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this is this is the difference between you and I. You, you've chosen um, chest pain in cats. It's a big issue. It's a pretty serious issue, actually. And, and you know, we're thinking about a big welfare topic um, affecting a lot of cats out there. And I think it's really important you raise that because it's a real public service. My next one? I, I'm worried. I'm worried it, now. <laughs> the next one's random. Uh, and it's not a dog or a cat or even a rabbit. On the seventh day of Christmas, my true love sent to me. This is a, a, a trigger for equine pericarditis. And it's uh, it's actually caterpillar pericarditis, believe what? it or not. Really? It's, it's a thing. Uh, this is what happens when you do the American boards. You see, you learn these <laughs> random uh, large animal topics so the ingestion of the eastern tent caterpillar i'll try and say the the uh, the proper name uh malocosoma americanum uh, as oh, yeah. people oh, will, yeah. will know yeah. it by you know it now right <laughs> yeah 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 um, americanum itis it's called uh, um, so th this has been associated ingestion of this particular type of caterpillar has been associated with a fibrinous pericarditis in horses um one might say to the horses just stop eating the caterpillars but uh these these uh, are, are a thing it's a, a a problem in equids in the u.s i'm going to show you a picture now of the the uh, eastern tent caterpillar so you wow. can see he's a colorful little guy yellow stripe yeah. um down there yeah. what's quite amazing they're called tent caterpillars because they make a tent uh to live in and uh, and breed oh, in cool. and you can see the numbers of caterpillars that must be there so if the horses are just idly you know chewing on the food enjoying themselves and they ingest a bunch of these caterpillars they can actually present with this fibrinous pericarditis and a lot of the time although we're making light of it 
this is bad for the horse. It's not treatable mm-hmm. for many cases unless they actually perform surgery to, to open the pericardium and flush the pericardium. Um, you know, this, this is, this is very bad. So caterpillar pericarditis, that's literally all I know about it. And, uh, and, and that's my, my third choice. That's very cool. I've never heard. About I mean, I that. think, that's very, very I cool. think we have a yeah. winner right now. <laughs> sure. Should we just stop <laughs> wait, now? Wait. But no, 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 no. Wait, wait, wait. It's still early days. Um, <laughs> I'll pick a serious one now. Uh, oh, um, okay. On the sixth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me. AP windows, a world of pulmonary windows. It's just that we had in the past, so in the past year, we saw three cases, which will not be the classic window described in the veterinary literature, I would say, which were cases refer as PDAs. They looked like PDAs, like classic PDA um, morphologies on echo. Really? And then... When we went and when we were uh, about to occlude them and then before and when we did TOE, they had windows. They mm. had no no ampullas at all or very, very short ampullas. And right. uh, so very, very short ductus with a large ostium, oh. uh, which would resemble looking at the Krichenko classification, would re- remember, will resemble their uh, his description of type B. Uh, uh, classification, I believe, where they, he described windows on an exact position where where a PDA should be. The, the windows I have seen, the windows described in the in the in the literature, to my understanding, most of them are in the main pulmonary artery in different locations from where we see PDAs, and these ones were like exactly at the, at the PDA position. That's super um, interesting. And it was very cool. And what I thought was very cool is how useful TOE was because, hmm. in fact, so echo was. Was was okay on echo on transthoracic echo. We could not open the ampulla. We thought that well, we cannot open it. Maybe it's just a, a challenging case. And you sometimes it's a bad echo day, yeah, right? Yeah, you exactly. just don't yeah. catch it. And, yeah, yeah, and you could not, and that's fine. And then on angio, because the position was classic for for a PDA. These these were cases with with uh, severe aort and pulmonary artery dilation. It was in fact quite difficult to to know exactly where the ductus was. So TOE was paramount. So the first case we saw. Uh, our challenge then was, do what? How do we occlude? How do we close this defect? We didn't think that surgeons could not do it without bypass. They could not do it mm. uh, because the, the 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 ductus was very very short, so you could not ligate. Sure, they wouldn't be uh, able to ligate. Yeah, yeah there'd be more exactly. more risk than anything. Yeah, and uh, and then in the first case, we were concerned to use an ACDO because, of course, there was no there is no ampulla, and so the proximal disc. Is completely exposed. Is inside yeah. the aorta. So it's so just we, sitting there in the aorta. I, I worry about that a little bit. Yeah, which is cool. So then, then the first case we, we said, okay, now we will not use an ACDO. We contacted uh, Abbott. They were very, very uh, uh, helpful, and we tried a few uh, ADOs and platter duct occluders, okay. but they were all too small. They were all too small because the the ostium in these in the first dog was like nine millimeters. Wow! And, and and so all the ADOs we had available from humans were were too small, and huh. then and then for cost cost restrictions and so on we, we decide okay we'll, we'll try an acdo we oversized the 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 proximal disc a lot in comparison with the ostium so the 
proximity is to awesome ratio of like 2.5 uh, mm. times, something like that, because mm -hmm. we were also concerned that of the device stability, and that's what they describe in humans, these windows, then of course the device cannot is not anchored, is not protected in any impulse. Yeah, so and you don't want to lose that in the aorta. Stable. I mean, that's yeah, uh, exactly. terrifying, uh, thought, isn't it? Yeah. And, so, and so we used an ACDO, large ACDO, and uh, this was a, a, a 30, 30, 40 kilos Labrador, and then before releasing the device, we were also concerned that the proximal disc could obstruct the aortic, the aortic flow, but there was no no signs of, of a gra no gradient on TOE in the aorta. And so we mm. released the device and was fine. And then we had two other dogs, exactly the same, very, very similar window-like PDAs where we, we have uh, used ACDOs. One in a Corgi that we did maybe four months ago, I was more worried because of course is, is, the other ones were medium to large breed dogs. And this one was a Corgi, but mm. but was fine. So it was interesting to see that that ACDO worked okay. Um, there was, we, we consider covered stent as there is this case report from- Right, from, from a German Shepherd of a type yeah, three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. With, with the covered stent, it would be another option. Yeah. Could have been more expensive and so on. So, They're very expensive, those, yeah. those covered stents. Yeah. I choose these guys because they looked on Trestorasic Echo, they was the, the right location and they looked very similar to a standard mm. PDA. Uh, and then TOE was really helpful. Also to measure, yeah. because the thing was the Austin was very oval. That was the other challenge. Because the Austin on 2D, in fact, we use 3D uh, theory, mm. because on, on both on 2D, the minor axis of, of the Austin was much smaller than the major axis. So interesting, really they were very, very, very oval which also made it tricky to pick the right ACTO. To me, the, the take-home message was TOE really helps, and we now spend a good amount of time carefully looking at the duct, when it's not a classic PDA morphology. Sure, sure, yeah. Carefully looking at it, um, because, yeah, 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 interesting. interesting. Did, you, did you see cases case like this, a window like? Uh, you know, it's super interesting. I've seen one AP window, and it was very close to the um, aortic and pulmonic valves. Um, yeah, yeah. So it was really on that ascending aorta yeah, before yeah, the exactly. arch, yeah. which is one of the classic locations from people. Yeah. Um, if anyone out there is struggling to visualize this, I think Jose would encourage you uh, as well to look at Busadori's textbook. The recent textbook is beautiful. Have you got a copy yet, Jose? Have you bought one? No, not yet. Unfortunately, not yet. Uh, you know, I, I bought one at a London Vet Show, actually, and I kept trying to buy it at ECVIM and at various congresses. They'd always sold out. Um, so yeah. every time I was with Busadori, I wanted him to sign my copy and uh, they'd always <laughs> sold out. I couldn't buy one. And he said, oh, I'll, I'll send you a signature on a piece of paper. Uh, <laughs> not quite the same. Um, but uh, but in there, there's a section on on AP windows in, in okay, the sort nice. of left to right shunting defects. And uh, there's a beautiful diagram describing the sort of three typical locations. Recently, I've seen two PDAs, one Cavalier, one miniature dash hunt, I think, wide hair dash hunt, who um, they're very short and puller. They're like a little sort of wedge. Um, but both these dogs have a bit of volume overload not not massively they're quite young and i worry about what will happen in two three four years not not you know in the, in the next couple of months i worry about what will happen long term so i'm planning on including these and i'm just you know i've been thinking well the, the ampoule is so short i don't love my my transthoracic images i wonder if these are, are windows of the same kind um, as you're yeah. describing because they're very unusual looking pdas they're very short the flow is five meters per second it, you know it, it otherwise looks like a pda the location is right but but I think the transesophageal echo on on the day of of the procedure is going to help us quite a lot yeah. with that, uh, and we we do that as standard now the four D uh, real time to get measurements um, because you know my angiograms I, I go through phases where my measurements aren't that accurate 
And I put a device in and think, oh, I could have done better. You know, the, the size choices, either, either oversized, I did one recently, or a couple I had undersized. And I thought, oh, I need to get better about integrating TOE into our surgery day plan for even the standard congenital. So we do that now as a standard, yep. um, just to That's try and make the most of, of what we're doing. And by the sounds of it, it's quite important for these, uh, you know, slightly unusual totally agree. Yep. Totally agree. Totally agree. Looking at the human literature after we tried uh, m or ductocluders, mm. they, they have been using in these uh, Krychenko type B window-like PDAs. They uh, use devices to occlude AS, uh, atroceptive effects. Oh, really? So, M-plazer septal occluders. Because then yeah. they have these two flat uh, discs with oh, a very short, discs. yeah, very, discs, very flat, which we are perfect, I guess, because then they, mm. they, they will leave inside the award and in, in in, in, in you have a flat disc inside of the award. So I wonder in the, in the second, in the first case, then we thought we, we, we wanted to try, but then, yeah, we didn't have the funds, but apparently the m septal uh, occluders is what, what they use in these window-like PDAs. Right. Uh, those ASD yeah. occluders are about five thousand pounds. They're so expensive yeah. Um, yeah. That, that often it, I've done one. Yeah. Um, often it becomes cost prohibitive, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so this was my serious one. Jesse, I think I think we better stop there for this episode. Uh, we've talked quite a lot about these uh, fantastically interesting heart diseases in part one and part two. Maybe it's a separate episode tomorrow. What do you think? Sounds great. Absolutely. Let's make a break, and then we'll be back tomorrow. Fantastic. Offer some Christmas cheer and we'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Fantastic. See you tomorrow. On the twelfth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me twelve Venu copies, eleven acro hearts, ten foreign bodies, nine partridge ventricles, eight cats with chest pain, seven caterpillars, six AP windows. <laughs> <laughs>